This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I am here in studio today with my dear colleague and co-host, Mike Yuseem. Jeff Klein is off for the day, and today is Valentine's Day. So, Mike, I'm going to do just a little warm-up before we get to our wonderful guests, and we're going to talk about a very important book. But first, I'm just curious, Mike, can you see any connection between Valentine's Day and leadership? Uh, well, aside from the fact that everybody's falling in love with Alexa. This is true. <laughs> true. Uh, let's see. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll take the flip side of that and say love and digi- the digital world are kind of at the opposite ends of the spectrum. But as our authors today are going to make clear that you really got to think about this world that's going very digital, artificial intelligence, becoming very widespread you got to think about it with your head, but you also have to think about it with your heart. So, Anne, how's that for a connection? You know, Mike, that is the perfect connection because today we are going to talk about an important new book, and that book is called Competing in the Age of AI. And the authors are Marco Iancitti and Kareem Lakhani, and they are both with us today. And I would like to invite Marco and Kareem to join us on the show. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning from us. Welcome. Uh, Marco and Kareem, let me say just a little bit about you, and then we'll dive in and talk about your book. Uh, Marco, you are the David Sarnoff Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School, where you head the Technology and Operations Management Unit and the Digital Initiative. You're an expert on digital innovation and transformation, and you study the strategy business models, and innovation processes of organizations such as, all right, Mike, you ready? Microsoft, Facebook, IBM, Walmart, and many more. (laughs) And Kareem, you are the Charles E. Wilson Professor of Business Administration and the Dorothy and Michael Hinsey Fellow at Harvard Business School. You specialize in technology, management, innovation, crowdsourcing, and the digital transformation of companies and industries. And you were the founder and co-director of the Laboratory for Innovation Science at Harvard. So welcome again to you, Marco and Kareem. Uh, can you, you know, we, Mike and I both have copies of your book, and we've had opportunity to read through. And I'm wondering if we could start just at the beginning and just have you say a word or two about the age of AI. And Marco, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Um, yeah, no, the book is fundamentally about a, uh, a realization that uh, Kareem and, and I had a few years ago as we went and thought about this, uh, this space. We've been looking at digital transformation for many years. We're working on courses. We're working with companies uh, on their own transformation. And uh, we felt that something really fundamental was happening to the nature of organization, the nature of companies. That really the whole essence of, of what a firm was had fundamentally changed. Um, that the core of the firm, which you know traditionally we've thought of as something made up of sort of managers, uh, organizations, um, 
with uh, sprinkling of information technology to make things more efficient, it fundamentally changed into something that was, for many new organizations and some old ones that were transforming, something that was much more data-centric and so much more information-centric, where the operational core of the firm was a bunch of artificial intelligence drawing on an integrated foundation of data to do things that traditionally more human-centered organizations had done. And the book fundamentally is about how AI, digital networks, um, and software are changing the nature of firms. Uh, and we think it's a, it's a major change that we've seen sort of for, the, for the first time in many, many years. Um, uh, it's a little bit like a new industrial revolution built around data and AI-centric organizations. And, you know, just to connect to the theme for today of Valentine's Day, I think... Uh, oh, great. And this is Kareem. <laughs> yes, this is Kareem. Hi. Uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, uh, if you sort of think about the number of people that now meet uh, through online dating apps and the role that these dating apps play in, in, in actually uh, creating marriages, I think uh, the more and more people in the U.S. are relying on dating apps to meet their future mates. Underneath that is our data, analytics, and AI that help drive matching. And so, you know, we started this journey in the software industry thinking about all the different ways that the software industry was transforming. Uh, but really, this, these sets of technologies, these approaches are now infiltrating all parts of our lives, um, and it's becoming quite ubiquitous. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to think about that, that uh, you know, most uh, couples will meet uh, through uh, AI-based algorithms, right? So uh, I think it's probably an interesting little factoid for, the, for Valentine's Day today. But, you know, as part of this, for us, you know, that we study operations management and business models, when the model of the firm changes, it's a big deal because uh, it changes all kinds of other things around how you drive strategy, how you drive improvement. Uh, how you manage these things. Right. And so we're seeing you know, a broad, broad set of changes that really cut across virtually every aspect of management uh, that we're starting to appreciate. All right, Marco and Kareem, I'm going to jump in and ask one follow-up qu- question and then hand the baton to to Mike. Now, and I'm going to be, I hope, a good student here of yours. And you're saying that the nature of the firm has made... Um, the way we think about it, has fundamentally changed. A move from thinking about supervisors, directors, managers, organizational structures, to having data, uh, AI, at the center. So I know in your book you give an example. I think it's Peloton. Can you illustrate what that means, sort of in concrete terms, so we can really grasp what you're saying? Yeah, look, look, we have lots of examples in the book, of course. Uh, Peloton is one of my favorite ones because if you think about the way they have architected the company, it's all about achieving large amounts of scale, right? So an, um, a class that they would run, uh, you know, I did a class yesterday, 6 a.m. in the morning. This is my 500th ride on the Peloton machine. And uh, <laughs> there were 1,800 people on that class. Right, a spin class that you go to, um, you know, in your uh, neighborhood might have at the most 20, 24 people. Right, uh, and and that eight is just that first live instance of that class. Now it's going to be available on demand, and typically about 10,000 to 15,000 people are going to be taking that class. So the scale of this is immense. And then they have all this data on me, you know, my heart rate my friends that are on with me, who I gave high fives to, all the data helps them target the next class that I should be thinking about taking as well. 
And then also, if you think about Peloton, they're not just a bike company. They're also offering a range of additional products uh, and services in terms of a treadmill uh, and then yoga, meditation, and so on and so forth. So the scope of what they can offer to me at scale is unprecedented. And then there's a ton of learning because the learning is about who I'm interacting with, who are my friends, uh, what classes I take, and that also enables them a tremendous uh, degree to innovate on top of what they do. And so before or previously in companies, you know, if you imagine SoulCycle as a, as, a, yeah. as, a, as a complement, right, SoulCycle would have some very smart people who understood the market inside the company making decisions. Here, you actually have data and algorithms as, as, as a primary driver of these types of, um, of these activities. But note also, right, this is no different than what happens with Uber, right? Mm -hmm. Uber, I would call a dispatcher, right, and say, send me my car, what we used to do a decade ago, right? Now it's all completely automated, right? The managers write the algorithms, right, and the algorithms do all the tasks. And I think that's the fundamental shift that we see happening. Yeah. Another example we talk about a lot in the book is uh, Ant Financial, uh, which really kind of puts this concept uh, on steroids, if you like, hmm. where, you know, you have an example where uh, they, this is a company that was built off of the Alipay payment app, uh, which is now the most common payment service uh, in the world. It scaled to uh, 1.2, 1.3 billion users which is really an order of magnitude larger than the largest bank uh, in the U.S. And they have offered since then a variety of different services based on the data that was accumulated through the payments, integrated with a bunch of other data sources. And they offer things like credit rating uh, system, uh, wealth management products, insurance products, uh, health insurance uh, options, a broad variety. So you, you see how you know the scale is huge, 1.3 billion people. The scope is much larger than a current bank, and it's adapting to individual preferences all the time. Yeah, and for, the, for our U.S. listeners, of course, Ant Financial is based out of China. Mm -hmm. um, so you may not have heard of them as much. But my favorite product from Ant Financial is the smartphone insurance that they offer uh, to people that wear tight jeans. Because <laughs> uh, they have data on your habits. And they go that, that, that smartphones and tight jeans are not a good complement. And so they'll offer you a specialized insurance product just on the fact that you wear tight jeans. So good. Well, let me jump in here and just remind our listeners. Uh, you're listening to Ann Greenhall. I'm here in studio with Mike Yusim, And we are talking with Marco Anciti and Kareem Lakhani about their new book called Competing in the Age of AI, Strategy and Leadership When Algorithms and Networks Run the World. Mike, I'm going to hand over to you. Well, first of all, Marco and Kareem, great to have you on the program and great to have a chance to uh, read your book. It is really interesting and uh, is obviously very important because the world is competing mm. in the age of artificial intelligence. Uh, and by the way, just a, a side quip before we get going, with dating and marriages increasingly coming through online services of uh, just a whole range now, based on algorithms, I'm hoping that we get the algorithms right. That's my, <laughs> my Valentine's Day statement. Yeah. And uh, if so, we ought to see divorce rates going down in decades well, to come. You know, we need algorithms to help us maintain our marriages after the fact. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that too. So anyway, that's great. 
I'm going to go to the subtitle of your book, which is Strategy and Leadership When Algorithms and Networks Run the World. And you've just made the point so well that algorithms and networks are increasingly indeed running the world. Um, let's go now to maybe just to pick a, an ex example of the challenges that that presents to those who have not led this change. Uh, let's make it uh, well a well, very well-known Cincinnati-based uh, grocery, grocery system, Kroger's, and uh, uh, I'm sure we all know that when Whole Foods was acquired by Amazon, Kroger's stock tanked as people worried, are they going to be able to do the, uh, well, <laughs> what, what Amazon was going to bring to Whole Foods. All that said, put yourself, if you wouldn't mind, in the shoes, and I know you've worked with many companies on this, of those who run Kroger's or any other company that is uh, not at the very forefront of this, how should their strategy change, and how should their leadership adapt? Well, it's a great question. It's, a, it's a, really a, a, an example of what, in the book and in some papers, we've called a collision. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit like being disrupted in the sense that, you know, this, a disruption is something where an organization face, is facing a new generation of technology that is threatening the business model. Uh, a collision event is a kind of disruption, but in some ways it's even worse because from Kroger's perspective, they're not being attacked by a new or a specific technology or a new individual business model, but they're being attacked by a completely different kind of company. Uh, it's a completely different kind of firm. Uh, Amazon is not built like traditional grocery hmm. uh, firms. Uh, it is built on fundamentally different foundations. Its operating model is, is a bunch of software, essentially, that is managed by people and, and that manages itself a bunch of people. But at the core, you see a fundamentally different kind of foundation than you would have seen in a traditional firm. And so Kroger's is facing this and figuring, trying to figure out how to transition into this kind of model. You can see, you know, sort of this similar kind of collision as Marriott looks at Airbnb hmm. uh, or maybe even bookings coming into its space. Uh, you have companies like Ford. Uh, facing uh, Waymo and Uber coming into their space. They're organizations that are serving the same customers essentially with similar use cases, but built on fundamentally different foundations. And those foundations, as Karim said, like as in Peloton or Ryan Financial, they can scale much faster, they can drive much broader scope, uh, they can learn, adapt, and personalize much better. And so it's pretty threatening. It's really interesting. Let me, let me before we go on, back up one notch, and let's say we are... Uh, the top team there at Kroger's or at hundreds of thousands of other companies that see this tidal wave coming uh, but may not have a obvious method to learn themselves about what kind of a, a, a reformation or transformation of the company they need. Uh, here's an example of a company that did that, that we've, uh, we've, the chief executive has been on our program here in the past. His name is Mark Turner. It's a regional bank called WSFS, Delaware based, but uh, throughout the uh, Atlantic states here, a very strong bank. And he almost right out of your book decided to take a three month leave from his corner office and spend time with Walmart as they were beginning to digitize, spend time with Apple as they know all about how to be digitalized. And so his method for learning what they needed strategically and also for, from his own leadership 
was to take some serious time off and take a hard look at those that are uh, ahead in the game. So in that vein, what are a couple steps that a listener could take to get more up to speed on both the strategy and the leadership in this age of algorithms? Yes, of course. Well, the first thing I'd recommend is to read our book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I would recommend right. that, too. And that's competing in the age of AI. Let's be clear. Um, look, I, I, think, I think, Michael, what you, what, you, what you recognize is important, which is that the template on how to compete is actually out in the open. Like, it's not a big yeah. secret. Like, we haven't, like, you know, uh, sort of, it's like the Coke's recipe that is, like, in a vault. This is out in the open. Like, you see what these companies do, right? They invest in unifying their data platforms. They think a lot about the customer experience, where the customer experience isn't driven by the silos uh, of, you know, the paper, uh, the paper division not talking uh, to the fabric division, for example. You know, um, they, they work hard at making sure that they start to think through how automation helps both their company but also have, helps their customers, right? And they have a clear-eye view about their role in the ecosystem that they're developing or are participating in. So these elements are well-known. What we find is that there's a gap between sort of uh, what, what we see when we talk to executives are two, 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 two things happen. One is like, oh, we're the special snowflakes, right? Our industry is so special and so different yeah. that this will never happen to us. <laughs> or our customers, whether they be B2B or B2C or B2B2C or whatever ways you want to think about it, are so different and so quirky that this will never happen to us, right? So there, there's this, this denial of the reality that is in front of them. Um, and the second that we see is the change that's needed to make this happen is actually non-trivial, right? It's not just putting money to technology. Yeah. Yeah. It is rethinking strategy and rethinking your organization. And in many ways, I mean, you know, I, I'm a bit blunt about it. Like CEOs and executives need guts, right? And the boards need to help them be clear right about the change in front of them and how to make that transition. Yeah, I mean, you can see the situation happening across so many different industries. Uh, retail, as you say, banking, uh, automotive, agriculture. Uh, you have new companies emerging that have fundamentally different operating business models. So I think it's pretty clear at this point that it's something that we need to worry about. And as, it, as in your example, there are CEOs out there that have figured this out and that have embraced it, and then yeah. essentially they haven't gone out there. And figuring out that you have to change uh, is really not that hard. I think in some ways the hard part is having the guts to actually do it. But having a clear top-down trajectory is really important because this is not a um, multi – it's not a two-month effort. This is a multi-year Transformation, transformation yeah. that one needs to go through, and so having sort of a clear uh, leadership mandate around this is fundamentally essential. And, and our belief really is that this has to be top down. I mean, I think you know, like I love the fast company change agents view of the world. Like you know, all these distributed change agents in the organization that are trying to make. And believe me, a lot of these organizations have these change agents, but if they don't have the support and the direction and the resources from the top, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Right? We're not going to 
throw this magic pixie dust of AI on a particular process and then think that we're we're competing that way. I mean, and the good news on this one is the technologies in many ways are the easy part. There's so much technology out there that is available. Um, all of it is available on the cloud, which makes it much easier to implement. Uh, so in many ways, the technology is easily accessible for a broad variety of companies across any industry. So here's um, a, a quick uh, comment on my part, and then I'm going to hand this back to Anne. To borrow a phrase, this is an era of open source management. Hmm. Uh, Fifty years ago, if you wanted to know how, uh, let's make it uh, Exxon at that time, uh, produced oil or General Motors uh, manufactured cars, you could stop by the headquarters and I wouldn't tell you a thing. Uh, today, uh, you've, you've said this, uh, it, so these models are basically open source. Thus, the challenge is not learning what to do, but uh, in, in fact, actually the learning itself and then adapting it to your own particular organization. And to me, it's a way, and it's this is a theme throughout your book, it's out there, and the challenge now is to figure out how to bring it into your own tent. So, and all right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. All right, let me chime in because we have a lot of voices here and we are live. Uh, we are talking with Marco Iancitti and Kareem Lakani about their new book, Competing in the Age of AI and the We. That's Mike Useem and Anne Greenhall. I'm going to follow up on Mike's great question. He asked you about the subtitle, Strategy and Leadership, when uh, algorithms and networks run the world. You started to talk about the uh, strategy and then made a wonderful point about we're heading into leadership and what's facing CEOs. And you said that some CEOs are in denial and they think that they are a special snowflake or that their uh, consumers are very different. And they may lack the courage. And so I'd just like you to, if you would, give. can you give us an example of a CEO who has had the courage to make a radical, not a trivial, but a radical change? Well, if you look at uh, my favorite example is Satya Nadella. I know that uh, he's technically from a technology company, but uh, Microsoft, even 10 years ago, was in dire straits. Yes. And you know, an existing business with, you know, tremendous margin that was being threatened from all sides. And uh, he had the courage to bat uh, on a business operating model, business model, that open source, open source, yes, in fact, embracing Linux and driving a transformation of, of, uh, of Microsoft into a cloud company. And literally, you know, he's sitting there saying, wow, you know, we're going from our traditional core business, which is huge margins, and is rapidly getting eroded to a growth business that um, you know is very low margin in comparison and requires a whole different range of capabilities um, and uh, infrastructure and investments. Uh, and it's interesting in terms of how he thinks about it because he says, look, the first thing you have to go back and think about is like, what is the purpose of your organization, right? And what has been the purpose all along? And, you know, for an organization like Microsoft, you know, they got started really on making people productive with information technology. And that's what they did then, and that's what they're excited about doing now. It's just that the context around that has fundamentally changed. You know, same thing if you think about Marriott or if you think about Ford. You know, what are they excited about? They're excited about providing uh, transportation 
for uh, for people to you know great uh, vehicles to move them around and the purpose is still there but the context mm-hmm. has really changed and so articulating that for the organization and giving a clear picture of how the context has evolved and the range of capabilities they need to build to get there uh, is really essential and it's very exciting to just see an organization like that that goes from very traditional stance uh, into reinventing itself with some uh, continuity and purpose, but approaching a fundamentally different set of, of, uh, of challenges. Um, so so is, yeah. the, is the quick moral to the story, if you can't beat them, join them? Yeah, you need to join them strategically, right? I mean, yeah. so again, if you think about um, what Bob Iger is trying to do at Disney, with Disney Plus now, Right. I mean, I mean, I think he made a strategic choice, and we'll see how well it plays off. But certainly, shows a gutsy choice to pull this content from Netflix and build his own streaming service. Right. And saying, you know, I'm not going to commoditize my content. I'm going to create my own uh, own streaming service, and we'll see how that plays out. But that shows you somebody who has, you know, strategies about making choices, and somebody's seeing the world emerge in front of them, seeing that they're their prior business model and operating model was not well set up for that world that uh, that Netflix brought for us in terms of content streaming and decided to take action, right? And it's a, it's a big bet. We'll see how it unfolds. But this is the kind of thing that, that, that we need to sort of have CEOs think about a lot and say, don't be timid about this. Be bold. Take bold strokes to make this happen. Today, we have the real pleasure of speaking with Harvard University professors Marco Iancitti and Kareem Lakani about their new book called Competing in the Age of AI, Strategy and Leadership When Algorithms and Networks Run the World. One of my favorite topics, and that is one that you write about, The Ethics of Digital Scale, Scope, and Learning. And I would like to uh, ask you to just tease out some of the issues that we face uh, as firms are being reinvented. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a hugely important uh, space right now to really think about, because the, the point that we make in the book is that as organizations are reinvented to drive this massive scalability, this very broad scope, this ability to personalize, customize, and adapt on the fly in, in microseconds, the nature of problems and challenges really uh, expands dramatically, right? And so you have, uh, traditionally you might have had a biased employee, but when you think mm-hmm. about the problem of bias applied at the algorithmic level, you can have this thing influence millions, if not hundreds of millions or billions of people at the same time from one mistake. Mm-hmm. And so the implications uh, of, of having a different operating model for the firm on the ethics of decision-making and the responsibilities of leaders have fundamentally shifted. Yes, may may I just uh, interject to underscore your point and just also share with Mike, about a week ago we had a guest speaker here at Penn, a woman named Kathy O'Neill, who has written a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And it was the uh, required reading of all incoming freshmen at the university, and that's about 2,500 freshmen, and they all read one book in common. 
And in her talk, she had a wonderful expression, which I can't resist sharing with you because it really makes your point. She said, algorithms are opinions embedded in the authority of mathematics. I completely agree. I mean, I think, you know, and the, the opinion is formed in two ways, right? The opinion is formed in the data you sample from for the algorithm to learn from, right? So the data itself is biased, right? That's going to give you a biased perspective uh, or non-representative perspective, mm-hmm. right? And also, in some cases, when we think about machine learning and AI, uh, in the supervised machine learning aspect, where the labeling process may also be, be biased, you know, and not biased like in a in a soft like in a hard way like we're actively trying to discriminate against X Y or right. Z. But but it's just built into humans. Humans are we're, we're you know we're flawed uh, flawed biological beings, and so there's going to be inherent bias in the ways we look at things. Um, and so so the labeling process may also lead to uh, to biased outcomes, um, and or algorithmically. Right, you might. I, I get a little bit into the, into the math. Right? You might think, well, I'm not discriminating against gender. I don't have those variables in my equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there might be other variables that are highly correlated with gender and may still give you a biased outcome. And so this this perspective is not just um, you know a philosophy perspective. Mm-hmm. Like ethics is typically said in the philosophy department, right? Yes. Uh, some business schools have ethicists as well. But it's actually both an engineering question, but also a management question. They go hand in hand now, right? Our colleagues at, at our engineering school, you know, uh, in the computer science, you know, I thought they, all they did was like write Python code or <laughs> build compilers. And now they're saying, no, we're thinking about computational fairness. Mm. So it's a whole new world opening up and a whole new set of responsibilities for executives. Before I press you to give an example, let's. I would also just like to tick off the other ways uh, in which the other issues we face. And for example, I know that you talk about digital amplification. Could you say a word about that? Yeah, I know. When you're dealing with a billion or even two billion uh, users uh, on your system, uh, and when the marginal cost of the additional transmission, the additional message to the to the you know two billionth user is zero. Um, you can take any kind of signal and amplify it to uh, an incredibly broad audience super quickly. And on top of that, that signal can uh, adapt itself uh, through personalization at the individual level. The cost of mass customization, if you like, is also zero. So I can personalize the thing so the Korean mm. gets exactly. Uh, what he needs or what he wants or what he doesn't want. Uh, and I can do that for 2 billion people at the same time, essentially at zero cost. Mm. And so that's good for me and on Netflix because then I get to see the movies and shows that I want to watch. But if I have a, a curiosity, uh, let's say, about autism, right, and then I start to explore it, the algorithms themselves are blind to my interest or not in autism, and they'll just keep feeding me stories on autism, whether mm. it be good or bad, you know, like bad signs or good signs, and, and then all of a sudden I'm going to be in that autism filter bubble, and the algorithm is just, you know, is just basically saying, Kareem clicks more when he sees autism, right? Mm. And what, what have been the high clicking rates before, and just build on that amplification. And so that is the, the thing which is different now. Mm. Yeah. So good. So digital amplification, 
algorithmic bias. And of course, I think listeners, uh, we are very familiar with the issues of data security and privacy. You also talk about platform control and equity. Could you just say a word about what you mean by that? Yeah, no, the control issue is a very interesting one and one that I, I, I feel very uh, close to in some ways because I, I wrote a, a book before this one called The Keystone Advantage uh, about 15 years ago. And it's fundamentally about ecosystems and the power of platforms and how the software-based platforms could enable innovation across millions of different participants and all kinds of different people could benefit from this. And it's a very optimistic view of the world in many ways. But the challenge is that anytime you have a platform that has an interface, uh, that interface is an open thing that somebody can benefit from tremendously mm -hmm. and help drive their own innovation. I can you know, uh, write all kinds of different applications that work on the iPhone and uh, you know, anything from uh, money management to exercising to you know, Karim's favorite Peloton app. And it's wonderful and, and the iPhone, iOS, platform is fantastic for letting me do all this innovation. On the other hand, anytime you open up a platform with an interface, uh, you also open up the possibility that the interface can be misused. And that's where platform control comes in. How do I know if I'm the platform provider that the platform, the tools that I offered to somebody else will be used for good? Uh, and so it's a huge deal, for example, with Facebook. You know, how does Facebook uh, police this, patrol this, think about mm, it, yeah. how do you regulate it from the outside? It's an incredibly powerful platform when I can tailor a message, uh, again, as said before, at zero marginal cost, personalized to billions of people. Uh, I can do all kinds of amazing things and uh, have all kinds of great discussion. I can also do a lot of things to influence public opinion in a way that's, that, uh, that's you know, consider not uh, not appropriate and not fair by large communities of people. Uh, so this kind of control thing is very important because uh, it's not even clear that a platform like Facebook has the ability to really control what people do with its platform. All right. So Marco and Kareem, I'm going to hand back to Mike in just uh, a second. Uh, you say in your book that these issues are the new challenges and responsibilities that face. All right, Mike, are you ready? business leaders <laughs> okay. and regulators. We're back to leadership. So just in a word, uh, what do you recommend to business leaders in the face of these ethical challenges? Well, the first thing I would say is awareness. Um, I think one of the first mistakes made by a lot of people over the last few years is really not understanding the full impact of the technical decisions or strategic decisions or business model decisions they might have in their own organizations. And so people made mistakes. And this is where it's interesting uh, that there's an opportunity for all kinds of leaders in the sense that nobody has this one right yet, right? <laughs> this is a very new world. The, the digital operating models have just been developed. Facebook hasn't been around for that long, and we've figured out all kinds of wonderful things that it does and all kinds of things that perhaps it should be doing better. Uh, same thing with, you know, Google technology, Amazon technology, Microsoft technology, what have you. And so when Disney comes along or when MasterCard comes along or when Comcast comes along building its own platforms, uh, they have the chance of, to do it right uh, and think about this more carefully and take some of the more traditional uh, ways of thinking about privacy and security and really apply them so that they build systems that are even more advanced, if you like, uh, and more effective and more fair 
than uh, systems that were built five, 10, 15 years ago by a new generation of companies. Yeah, and uh, what I would add is, like, I mean, I think there's often this naivete uh, about, you know, uh, there's no, uh, uh, the technology is always going to do good. We're, we're ha ha letting lots of people connect at scale, and that's a good thing, and so on. And I think what we've learned is that, you know, uh, technology can be used for both good and bad. Mm -hmm. And when you're scaling to a billion people, guess what? Bad stuff is also going to happen on your platforms, and you better not be naive about it, right? Like society expects you to have a view of, around these things and uh, to, to, to sort of live in a sort of a utopian kumbaya world where everything <laughs> is great and nothing is going to go bad. It's just simply simply stupid from my point of view, right? Mm. And so I think, I think that's, that that's the leadership mandate, right? Right. And that, that goes from the board level. The board has to be educated. The C-suite needs to be educated. And then all the managers as well. Very good. I'm going to hand to Mike, but before I do, let me remind listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Mike Yusim and I, Ann Greenhall, are speaking with Marco Ianciti and Kareem Lakhani about their new book, Competing in the Age of AI. Mike, let's follow up. Mark and Kareem, I'm going to kind of put us in a, in a personal position to guide the world as follows. Your dean, Nitin Aria, is stepping down. Our dean, Jeffrey Garrett, is stepping down. And let's just say, fast forward into the fall, the <laughs> new deans at two business schools call you into their office. They've read your good book, and they say the following. Uh, for some years now, we've been uh, working onto the web. You've got a huge operation. I think you call it... Uh, HBX, uh, we've got the, uh, the analog here as well, but we're still largely um, face <laughs> brick, to face. Bricks and mortars uh, <laughs> at our end. Siloed. Yeah, so. This is my favorite, uh, favorite project. I take our institution and put it in the bus every single time just to make sure that I'm, I'm speaking you know, honestly and truthfully that you know, the, the transformation challenges that universities face, that business school face, elite business school like ours, like Wharton and HBS face, are tremendous, right? So if you think about, and I'm going to just be totally open, right? If you think about our organization, right? We, we're a product-based organization. We have an MBA yeah. product. We have an exec ed product. We have an online product. We have a publishing product. You name it. Lots of products. Uh, silos everywhere. Data ownership that's, uh, that, that, that is, is fiercely protected. No sharing. Um, no way for me to know that a student that I had a decade ago is now here in executive education or that, you know, <laughs> that I should send them a particular article, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so uh, I think, and, you know, we face, you know, significant questions by society about our relevance as well, right? Yeah. Um, and our expense. And our expense, <laughs> us, exactly. And so are we just going to serve the elite of the elite? Or are we going to make our uh, our education mission available to the masses, right? Yeah. Uh, you and I both feel, Mark, and I feel that, that the message we have is not just for a thousand people that come on campus per year, but, you know, to a million people or to oh, all managers. Totally. And so, so I, I'm totally with you that the the reorganization uh, of the of the of the MBA for, of the of the business schools is as much on the table as much as Kroger's reorganization. It's time, it's time to transform the core. I think that we've done lots of experiments. We've done lots of pilots. 
We tried lots of technologies. We, we have every platform in the world uh, deployed here to drive new kinds of online learning and different experiences. It's time to bite the bullet and really engage in the transformation of the core of how we actually deliver this. And really go back, and in, again, in Satya's advice is go back to our, what's our fundamental purpose? Yeah. To rethink yeah. that uh, and to you know, go back to our roots and say, why are we here? What is the impact that we want to have? And then think about how do we actually deliver that impact within the context, within the, the kinds of environment that, that we're in today. Um, and it's a fundamentally different core. Um, yeah. it, as an organization, as a set of capabilities, uh, and as a, as a leadership mandate. Yeah. Great, great points. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about this. If you can tell. <laughs> yeah, you so hit a chord. Are we. Yes. <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the same club. <laughs> so, uh, but, Mike, you had a follow up. Yeah, let, let me just uh, turn this uh, same question, different direction. Uh, you're in, you're involved uh, massively, as are we, in working with, uh, if you count students and then people who come through mid-career programs thousands of people every year. And just to say it, our mandate is to help them understand what they're going to need now, but also 10 to 15 years out. In light of your book, what changes would you advocate in not necessarily teaching method, but in content on strategy and leadership for a world where algorithms and networks are running the world? Yeah, so let me uh, let me uh, provide uh, you know my own selfish example uh, <laughs> uh, to to sort of illustrate this. So um, I was fortunate uh, two and a half years ago to start this new online uh, program on, in business analytics with our engineering school. So we have mid-career executives that are learning statistics, that are learning uh, data science, that are learning machine learning and systems, and complementing them with digital strategy, digital marketing, operations, leadership. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I'm amazed about, and I'm sure you see this also at Wharton and other top schools see that, that the commitment that these mature 40-year-olds have to learn this stuff, right? 40-year-olds from business backgrounds learning Python. And the point here isn't that you're going to become a data scientist. The point is that if you agree with us that the core of the business is going to be data analytics and AI, that you now need to understand these tools, techniques, and approaches and be able to know what the opportunities are, what the risks are, right, and what the right questions are yep. that you need to be asking. Yep. And so that's the learning that I think uh, lots of people at the mid-career level need to sort of embark on one way or the other. What's great is that there are now many, many flexible programs offered by the top schools to help you learn this stuff. Um, and it's the it's the learning that I think is the most important element. I think if you look at the challenges that many technology firms have had over the last five years, uh, particularly around issues around ethics, privacy, bias, et cetera, you see that there's actually a, a renewed purpose for the MBA. This is not just a traditional engineering problem. Even it's not even a, a new kind of engineering problem. It really requires a blend of skill sets and capabilities. And so just like we need engineers that worry about ethics um, and build ethics into the algorithms, we need MBAs that are aware of the engineering impact of their decisions and the technology amplification that their decisions are going to have on, on sort of the operating side. Uh, it, it's fundamentally both giving them the skill set to deal with problems in this new age, but also 
to understand the, the, the new blend of issues that they're facing. And so it's a fantastic time in some ways for really developing both engineering and MBA talent. Yeah, absolutely. Mar- Marco and Kareem, I'm going to uh, ask you, because I have a special interest in the undergraduate population, if you have similar ver- uh, views when it comes to the education of undergraduates. Oh, for sure. My, my son is a, is a junior at Harvard College. He's a is in computer science, uh, and he talks about this stuff every day. Uh, and they're, you know, he's, he's in this funny uh, group of uh, roommates. I think they have seven engineers <laughs> and uh, one classics major. So <laughs> it, it's pretty, it kind of reflects a little bit the, the Harvard undergraduate program these days. Yeah, and what I would say, sorry, sorry. No, no, I'm not saying, and, I mean, they're out there debating this stuff and thinking about this all the time. I mean, they're out there doing their engineering problem sets that are relatively traditional, but the stuff that's really grabbing them is like, what are they really going to do and how are they going to deal with the kinds of issues that say, that see firms like Facebook and Google struggling with these days? <laughs> yeah, and what I would sort of say is that, you know, like, I, mean, I think there's like a, you know, I did engineering as an undergrad, so, you know, I had you know, very little liberal arts training. <laughs> uh, but the, what the liberal arts education should now be is actually being redefined in this life, right? So the, most, the two of the most popular courses at the college at the undergraduate level at Harvard are computer science and statistics, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where a majority of the undergrads are not taking those courses because they see the market demand as well for this, right? Mm-hmm. They're not naive about that. But, you know, we started our book uh, with the picture of uh, the story about the, the, the next Rembrandt, yes. right? And the thing that struck me the most about the next Rembrandt, above it on the fact that, you know, uh, ordinary people can create extraordinary things with AI, uh, is the fact that art itself right? Like the most traditional view of paintings, oil paintings, European masters, and how we understand them and appreciate them is getting revolutionized with uh, computer science and data and analytics. And so I think, you know, what it means to be an art history major is going to be very different going forward than what it was when we were undergrads 30, 40 years ago. All right. Kareem and Marco, uh, just one one quick follow-up for me and then to Mike, because our time is growing short. But you can see we're very in, we're enjoying the conversation immensely. Uh, do you see a place for on-campus education, especially for undergrads? Of course. Of course. I mean, I think that uh, it, I think what we see more generally is that it's not about online and offline. It's not about uh, online and, or brick and mortar anymore, but it's about the blend of both. Mm-hmm. Right? I, think, I think in any business, in any kind of uh, organization, and we see it in education, I think that there's incredibly powerful online tools for remote learning, and there's incredibly powerful interaction that can only happen when people actually really see each other and shake hands and go out for a beer. I, I think, and, and actually, Kareem's program, the HBAP program, is a great example of that. It has a blend of both, and it, it mixes them very well. Yeah, I think, I think blended learning is, is, is very important. What I would also add is that even, like, our four-year model of the undergraduate education, right, may be worth revisiting, right? And now, the, the four-year education does several things. But it's kind of, I think I heard somebody from Stanford Design School say that it's kind of like thinking that you come, uh, you know, imagine if you just did sort of hardcore fitness instruction for only four years and that was supposed to last you a lifetime, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Uh, Like like that's not the case. Our world is changing so much. The need for knowledge is expanding ever so much. And so our, our, our role as educators in thinking through 
what is a lifelong learning model that mm-hmm. we as universities can provide continuously? Right. All right, I want Mike to get a word in. Last question, Mike. And, and we're down to the final minute, <laughs> yep. so this is going to be a short question. We've got a minute or so to deal with it. Uh, is the day coming, let's make it 10 years out, where uh, an, uh, a possible applicant to one of our universities says, uh, Alexa, teach me strategy and leadership. <laughs> That's so great, <laughs> what do you think? This is the dark side of AI, of course, that a lot of people worry about the, the end of a whole class of jobs, maybe including our own. So what do, what do you think, guys? Oh, I think, it's, I think we're already there. I think when, uh, when my son wants to learn something, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the first thing that he does is uh, he goes to Google and searches for it and finds all kinds YouTube of great channels. stuff. Yeah. YouTube yeah. channels, Wikipedia, you know, we already definitely have uh, all kinds of different resources that are supplanting what we can do here in uh, in the classroom. And, you know, if I look at what he's learning, how much of that he's actually learning in the classroom versus how much of it is learning versus on various sources uh, online and, and so on, I, I'm not sure that it's uh, in our favor uh, still. Yes, I'm looking forward to the Marco bot and the Kareem bot being available. Uh, <laughs> okay. Probably less that my carbon footprint goes down. Exactly. Uh, that would be fantastic. Can't wait. All right. So, well, and, and by the way, their tenure will be just indefinite, right? In <laughs> the next exactly. 500 years. There you go. In perpetuity. Yeah, I love that. That's great. All right. Marco, Ian and Kareem Lakani. And this might seem like such a simple question. Where can listeners find out more about your book, Competing in the Age of AI? Well, the first place to go, of course, is uh, Amazon, but it's widely available online through the various uh, app stores as well uh, on their on their on their channels, and uh, and on our uh, wonderful web- website, which is ageof.ai. Yes. Very good. Well, Mike and I both want to thank you heartily for joining us on the show Indeed. this morning. Thank you. It's been we great. We had a lot of fun with you guys. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.